This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. November 14th, 2004. Veteran U.S. Navy pilot David Fravor and another member of his squadron were sent on a mission from their posts on the aircraft carrier USS Nimitz, located about 140 miles southwest of San Diego. A radar operator stationed on a nearby cruiser, the USS Princeton, had been seeing a strange object pop up on their radar for the past two weeks, and the Princeton's officers wanted Fravor and his wingman to check it out. It was a perfect Southern California day. The sky was clear and the water was calm. When Fravor arrived at the designated location, there was nothing to obstruct the mysterious object. As a pilot whose career spanned nearly 25 years, Fravor had seen it all. Or so he thought. Fravor couldn't believe his eyes. What he was seeing was beyond the scope of any human technology. There was no doubt in his mind. It was a UFO. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Thursday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, on Twitter at ParCast Network, and at ParCast.com. Some of you have been asking us how you can help support the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This week's episode is part two of our investigation into unidentified flying objects, a.k.a. UFOs. Last week, we looked into the early history of UFOs. Although reports of strange objects in the atmosphere goes back centuries, UFO sightings didn't truly take off pardon the pun, until June of 1947, when amateur pilot Kenneth Arnold saw nine strange objects flying above Mount Rainier in Washington state. Hundreds of similar sightings were reported over the ensuing months. The American government even got caught up in the flying saucer craze. 
Two weeks after Arnold's initial sightings, the 509th Bomb Group out of Roswell, New Mexico, reported that it had recovered the remains of a crashed flying saucer. Within a day, the record was quickly corrected to say they had actually recovered a downed weather balloon. But the American government wasn't out of the woods with flying saucers, which would go on to be officially referred to as unidentified flying objects, or UFOs, in 1951. Over the next two decades, the American government conducted three UFO investigations, Project Sign from 1947 to 1948, Project Grudge from 1948 to 1951, and Project Blue Book from 1951 to 1970. At the end of Project Blue Book, the government concluded that the vast majority of UFO sightings were due to optical illusions or misidentified sightings of known atmospheric phenomena or aircraft. But those who believed UFOs were secret government projects or alien spacecraft continued to search for proof. This week, we'll be following the stories of several UFO experts, or ufologists, who discovered the American government's real involvement with UFOs, as well as more recent UFO sightings that have left some experts quite skeptical of the government's official explanation. Are these strange sightings merely tricks of the eye? and normal objects that people mistake for something else? Or are they actually evidence of highly classified military projects? Or perhaps the advanced technology of extraterrestrial visitors? If so, why doesn't the government want us to know about it? The truth, quite literally, is out of this world. One of the most prominent ufologists in the years following Project Blue Book's conclusion in 1970 was physicist Stanton Friedman. Although he had never seen a UFO himself, Friedman firmly believed that there was more to UFOs than met the eye. A native of New Jersey, Friedman first became interested in UFOs in 1958 while working on nuclear airplanes for Boeing. By chance, Friedman came across a report on UFOs by Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, who served as head of Project Blue Book until 1954. Friedman was intrigued and took a look at Blue Book's findings up to that point. What he read had Friedman convinced that UFOs were alien vessels, and he dedicated his life to studying them further. For the next decade, Friedman performed lectures on UFOs across the world. In 1978, While preparing for a television interview in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Friedman found out that a man named Jesse Marcel lived nearby, and he had once handled the wreckage of a UFO. Friedman contacted Marcel and learned that he had been the intelligence officer for the 509th Bomb Group at Roswell. Marcel was the first Air Force official to investigate the so-called weather balloon wreckage after it had been found by ranch hand Mac Brazel in 1947. He was certain that the wreckage was extraterrestrial in nature. After speaking to Marcel, Friedman reviewed as many accounts about the Roswell incident as he could. His findings were published in a 1980 book he co-wrote with fellow UFO investigators Charles Berlitz and Bill Moore, called The Roswell Incident. It put the tiny New Mexico town back on the map for the UFO community. One of the accounts in the book came from a second-hand story Friedman was told by a couple at one of his lectures in 1972. They said their now-deceased friend 
told them he saw a crashed flying saucer in 1947 on the plains of San Agustin in New Mexico, about 150 miles west of the Roswell wreckage. He said in addition to the wreckage, he also saw several little bodies he believed to be alien. Friedman and his co-authors only briefly mentioned the story in the book, since its only connection to Roswell was the relatively close distances between the two crashes. But with no way to verify its authenticity, they decided to not pursue it any further. In 1984, four years after the Roswell incident was published, Friedman got a call from his co-author, Bill Moore. Moore's friend, a film producer named Jamie Chanderay, had received photos of documents detailing the existence of a secret government committee called Majestic 12, or MJ-12. One of the documents was a memo dated September 24, 1947, from President Harry S. Truman to Defense Secretary James Forrestal that authorized the group's creation. We've previously gone in-depth on the Majestic 12 mystery here on Unexplained Mysteries. If you'd like to learn more, please check out our two-part investigation into these mysterious documents that seemingly proved the government knew that flying saucers had crashed on Earth. Despite the stunning information the documents contained, Moore, Chanderay, and Friedman decided to keep them secret for the time being. While the MJ-12 documents could change perception of UFOs forever, they could also ruin the men's careers if they were fake. Around one year after Chanderay received the MJ-12 photos, Moore received an odd postcard that would seemingly verify the document's authenticity. The postcard's picture was of Ethiopia, but the postmark indicated it was sent from New Zealand. The message was equally odd, quote, Add zest to your trip to Washington. Try Reese's Pieces. For a stylish look, try Suitland, end quote. Friedman believed it was a coded message. He knew that some top-secret Air Force documents were being declassified at a National Archives facility in Suitland, Maryland. Moore and Chanderay went to investigate. After three days of combing through the files of Record Group 341, they found a memo dated July 14, 1954, from President Eisenhower's special assistant Robert Cutler to General Nathan F. Twining, one of the purported MJ-12 members. The memo read, quote, The president has decided the MJ-12 SSP briefing should take place during the already scheduled White House meeting of July 16th, rather than following it as previously intended, end quote. This was it the proof Chanderay, Moore, and Friedman were so desperately hoping to find. The three men still held off on revealing the MJ-12 documents, but their hands were forced when British UFO author Timothy Good obtained a copy of the photos, also from an anonymous source. Good was less hesitant than Moore, Chanderay, and Friedman, and published some of them in his book Above Top Secret. News of the documents reached the mainstream media, and the FBI opened an investigation in 1988 to determine their authenticity. Their findings, released on October 25, 1988, were unambiguous. The Majestic 12 documents were fake. There was no room for doubt either. In the FBI's report, the word bogus is scrawled in giant capital letters over every single document. Of course, the UFO community was naturally distrustful of the FBI's report. 
If the government had covered up the true nature of UFOs up to that point, why would they start telling the truth now? But the problem for those who believed in the MJ-12 document's authenticity wasn't the FBI. It was from fellow outsiders who found proof the documents were fake. Enter Philip J. Class, a noted UFO skeptic and expert in satellite and laser technology. Class was generally accepted in the UFO community because his problem wasn't with people who believed in UFOs. It was with the people who profited off their beliefs. When Class debunked a UFO report, he could be trusted. For instance, Class was able to get to the truth of the 1966 UFO sightings in Michigan that we discussed in last week's episode. Unlike the government's official explanation that the lights people saw were due to fires caused by swamp gas, Class was able to prove that the UFOs people saw were actually fixed-wing aircraft sent by the military contractor Raytheon to test an experimental radar system. Class wasn't afraid to go against official government explanations of UFOs, so when he ultimately agreed with the FBI, he was taken at his word. And as with his other investigations, he had proof to back up his findings. The declassified memo Moore and Chandere found at the National Archives facility in Suitland also turned out to be a fake. The many errors and discrepancies within the MJ-12 documents proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that they weren't authentic. But were Moore, Chandere, and Friedman behind the hoax? Or did someone else dupe them? One possibility is that the MJ-12 documents were actually part of a secret disinformation campaign by the American government. During the Cold War, the American government was justifiably worried about Soviet spies uncovering secret military projects. With UFO groups constantly sniffing around military facilities, there was a legitimate chance of them coming across classified military technology in their search for proof of extraterrestrial contact. In exchange for information on UFO groups' movements, the Air Force would provide proof of alien life. It's entirely possible that the MJ-12 documents were part of this type of disinformation campaign to deflect from real military projects that the American government wanted to keep away from prying eyes. Bill Moore and Stanton Friedman had staked their professional reputations on the legitimacy of the MJ-12 documents. They were already respected within the UFO community. What motivation would they have to fake the MJ-12 documents themselves? Discrediting Friedman and Moore also cast doubt on their investigations at Roswell. They were now seen as two men who had fallen victim to an easily disprovable hoax or had concocted it themselves. Why would anyone take their observations of Roswell seriously now? But Friedman in particular remained undeterred. Despite the knock his reputation had taken from the MJ-12 affair, he continued to pursue his research at Roswell, and eventually, the truth of what the American government was really hiding would be revealed. After the break, we'll dig into the truth of Roswell. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now back to the story. Despite the embarrassment of the MJ-12 fiasco, Stanton Friedman continued to pursue his UFO studies and, in 1989, was hired as a consultant for the TV show Unsolved Mysteries, not to be confused with our podcast, Unexplained Mysteries. Friedman was hired to consult on episodes about Roswell and other reported UFO crashes. One of these cases was the alleged crash on the plains of San Augustine that Friedman had heard about in 1972 and briefly mentioned in his book. The show included a reenactment of the incident, and after it aired, the producers received a call from a man named Gerald Anderson, who claimed the reenactment wasn't accurate. Now residing in Springfield, Missouri, Anderson used to live in New Mexico and claimed to have seen the wreckage when he was out on a rock hunting trip with his family. Friedman arranged for the director of a local UFO group near Springfield to interview Anderson, who also recounted his memories to a local newspaper. Quote, We all went up to it. There were three creatures, three bodies, lying on the ground underneath this thing in the shade. Two weren't moving. And the third one obviously was having trouble breathing, like when you have broken ribs. There was a fourth one that apparently had been giving first aid to the others, end quote. Shortly after arriving on the scene, Anderson and his family were accosted by the military, who told them to vacate the area immediately. Galvanized by this account, Friedman sought out additional eyewitnesses and published them in the 1992 book Crash at Corona, that he co-wrote with fellow UFO researcher Don Berliner. In their book, Friedman and Berliner claimed that there were, in fact, two separate flying saucer crashes near Roswell that resulted in the deaths of seven aliens and the capture of one survivor. The wrecks near Roswell and the plains of San Augustine were the result of a mid-air collision that caused the two saucers to crash, although why they landed so far away from each other is unknown. Once again, Philip Klass was on hand to pour cold water over Friedman's assertions. Klass cited the minutes from the Air Force Advisory Board meeting on March 17, 1948. The document quotes Colonel Howard McCoy, the chief of intelligence at what is now the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where Friedman and Berliner believed the flying saucer wreckages and alien bodies had been stored. In the meeting, Colonel McCoy voiced his frustration at the lack of UFO evidence. Quote, We are running down every report. I can't even tell you how much we would give to have one of these crash in an area so that we could recover whatever they are. End quote. Unless McCoy was covering up the evidence from the alleged saucer crashes, his frustration at the lack of physical UFO evidence makes it highly unlikely extraterrestrial materials were being kept at the base. Although Klass was right in pointing out that the government wasn't hiding evidence of aliens, it doesn't mean the government wasn't hiding something. There was rising belief that the whole truth regarding Roswell wasn't being divulged. New Mexico House Representative Stephen Schiff even got involved and successfully petitioned for the Congressional General Accounting Office to launch an investigation in January 1994. 
Suddenly faced with overwhelming negative publicity, the Air Force decided to launch an investigation of its own under the supervision of Colonel Richard Weaver. Over the course of six months, Colonel Weaver and his team interviewed the surviving eyewitnesses to the debris recovery from the crashes and searched through all existing relevant records. Eventually, they spoke to one Charles Moore, no relation to Bill Moore, the UFO investigator, who was involved with a top-secret project in 1947 called Project Mogul. Project Mogul was a highly classified program in which the American government launched high-altitude balloons into the upper atmosphere that could monitor any Soviet nuclear tests. It was based in Washington, D.C., as well as the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico, which is about 225 miles north of Roswell. The Project Mogul balloons were massive, measuring 657 feet from tip to tail, over twice the height of the Statue of Liberty. Their tails were equipped with a litany of sensors and listening devices that would hopefully detect any nuclear activity. Moore said the balloons were equipped with corner reflectors that allowed them to be tracked on radar. A balloon was launched on June 4, 1947, and tracked to within 20 miles of the Roswell crash site before disappearing from their scopes in mid-June. The materials used to construct the balloons matched those of the wreckage W.W. Brazel famously discovered. The Air Force would offer an official explanation in a news briefing given by Colonel John Haynes. In 1947, it was the misidentification of these radar reflectors that is most likely the famous flying disc. As for the mysterious hieroglyphics supposedly written on some of the materials, the toy company that manufactured the radar reflectors reinforced their seams with tape that had abstract flower-like designs that could be easily mistaken for a mysterious alien language. It's likely that Major Jesse Marcel really did think he had recovered the remains of a flying saucer, and his superiors didn't bother to correct his assumption. To them, it was better that people thought there was a crashed alien spacecraft than to know about a secret project monitoring possible Soviet nuclear activity. However, they didn't anticipate the uproar that Marcel's press release would create, which is why the story was quickly changed to say they had found a weather balloon. But once the idea of the government recovering flying saucers was out, there was no putting it back in the box. As for the alien bodies recovered from the crash site, the Air Force explained that for a few years, beginning in 1947, they were dropping dummies from high-altitude balloons and studying the results of the impact. The dummies' appearances matched those of the so-called aliens, three and a half to four feet tall, with bluish skin, and no ears, hair, eyebrows, or eyelashes. The Air Force and the General Accounting Office released essentially identical conclusions in 1994 and 1995 that there's no evidence of any extraterrestrial activity surrounding the Roswell incident. Predictably, Stanton Friedman and other members of the UFO community were skeptical of these findings. It's an insult to the intelligence of the general public in the United States to have our own Air Force make such a absurd, ludicrous statement. I believe there was something that happened that the military thought so serious that they would threaten people with their lives. If it happened to be alien bodies, then yes, that's a possibility. That would be something that would certainly 
um, require heavy-handedness in 1947. And soon after, their convictions seemed to be validated. In 1995, Englishman Ray Santilli came forward with a video of what he said was an autopsy performed on one of the aliens recovered from the Roswell crash. Santilli claimed he obtained the footage from a former Army photographer who was present at the autopsy in 1947. The black and white film is 17 minutes long and contains no sound. It takes place in a sterile room as two people in contamination suits perform the autopsy on a short, slim humanoid with a bulbous head and six-fingered hands. The footage caught the attention of producers at Fox TV, who aired it on August 28, 1995, as part of a program called Alien Autopsy, Fact or Fiction. Hosted by Jonathan Frakes, an actor on Star Trek The Next Generation, the program featured appearances by notable names such as Oscar-winning makeup artist Stan Winston, cinematographer Alan Davia, forensic pathologist Cyril Wecht, and UFO expert Kevin Randall, who all attested that the autopsy procedures were authentic, although they weren't sure if the footage was real. The program was immensely popular and re-aired several times with 11.7 million people tuning in to a November broadcast. It sparked considerable debate over the autopsy's authenticity. A November 27, 1995 Time magazine article boldly claimed there hadn't been this much debate over film footage since the Zapruder film of President John F. Kennedy's assassination. Almost immediately, skeptics of the footage raised a host of issues. For example, the footage went conveniently out of focus during some of the autopsy's crucial moments. The camera work was done in a jumpy style, more akin to ER than that of a smooth World War II-era documentation. Several cuts were done of the same action, creating a dramatic event. And judging by the wall clock, the autopsy only took around two and a half hours which isn't very long considering the operation's monumental nature. Making matters worse for those who believed the video was authentic, many of the Fox program's participants voiced their skepticism after it aired. Although Stan Winston said in his interview that he thought the alien autopsy was a hoax, for the program, the producers made it look like he felt it could be authentic. Even Stanton Friedman, who still doggedly maintained the authenticity of some of the MJ-12 documents, despite the overwhelming opinion otherwise, was skeptical of Ray Santilli's story about the supposed autopsy footage. Santilli himself remained silent on the film's authenticity for over 10 years, until the lead-up to the release of a film based off of the controversy surrounding the footage. Finally, Santilli admitted that the footage wasn't authentic but he stopped short of calling it a hoax. According to Santilli, the film he sold to Fox was actually a recreation of the original footage, which was too degraded to use by the time he obtained it. But Santilli's explanation largely fell on deaf ears. Today, few people, if any, believe there is anything of worth in the footage pertaining to extraterrestrial life. But the interest the so-called autopsy footage created when it originally aired did demonstrate something, that interest in UFOs and alien life isn't constrained to a small community of conspiracy theorists. Less than two years after Alien Autopsy, Fact or Fiction aired for a third time to over 11 million viewers in December 1995, 
thousands of people witnessed a UFO event in Arizona. And although the government provided an official explanation, there are many reasons to suspect they didn't tell the whole truth. We'll dive into more recent UFO reports after this break. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Now, back to the story. At 8.16 p.m. on the evening of March 13, 1997, Pete Davenport at the National UFO Reporting Center in Seattle, Washington, received a call about a potential UFO sighting in Paulden, Arizona, about 60 miles north of Phoenix. A retired police officer had spotted a cluster of five red lights moving south and his call to the local authorities had been referred to Davenport's office. Less than two minutes later, Davenport received another report, this time from Prescott, located 15 miles south of Paulden. This one reported five lights as well, although one was red and the other four were white. Over the next 106 minutes, Davenport's phones would be flooded with reports of the lights as they continued on their southward trajectory. The reports were all shockingly similar. Most people reported seeing the lights on a gigantic V-shaped object as it flew through the sky. In all, it had seven lights, three on each side of the V, with a seventh light trailing behind them. Almost every report of the lights shared the same three characteristics. First, it was enormous. The smallest estimation was that they spanned the length of three football fields, with computer analysis of various first-hand videos putting them at 6,000 feet long, or over a mile. Second, the lights and whatever object they were attached to made absolutely zero sound. And third... The lights moved very slowly once they moved over Phoenix, at only about 30 miles an hour, and occasionally stopping to hover in place. Airplane pilots in the area could see the lights as well, but when they asked air traffic controllers for help identifying the lights, they couldn't help. Although Bill Grava, who was on duty at Phoenix's Sky Harbor International Airport, could see the lights, they weren't appearing on his radar screens. Many of the witnesses who saw the lights as they passed over Phoenix were able to tell that they were attached to some sort of object, although what it was, they couldn't say. In a USA Today article, management consultant Tim Lee described what he saw, quote, It was so big and so strange, you couldn't actually see the object. All you could see was the outline, as though something was blotting out the stars. Also... The light didn't spill out or shine. 
I've never seen a light like that, end quote. Michael Tanner and Jim Dilatoso, partners at a computer company called Village Labs, took it upon themselves to try to figure out what the lights were. They compiled as much footage of the event as possible and ran a computer analysis to compare the lights to every other light videotaped on the Phoenix skyline on the night in question. They concluded that the mysterious lights were completely unique. They were perfectly uniform, with no variation from one edge to the other, and had no glow. They ruled out lasers, flares, holograms, and airplane lights as potential sources. Tanner also compiled a timeline of the event as best he could. He concluded that there were four objects that night, including the gigantic V-shaped object that flew over Phoenix. They all arrived from the same point and returned the way they came, but an official explanation wasn't forthcoming. Frustrated by the lack of information, Phoenix City Councilwoman Frances Barwood asked during a meeting on May 6, 1997, if there was an official investigation into what the lights were. But city officials' hands were tied. Since Phoenix has no Air Force, the city government didn't have the resources to properly investigate the lights. The federal government wasn't any help either. Since the U.S. government stopped officially investigating UFO cases when Project Blue Book shut down, there was nothing the Air Force could or would do. But less than a month after Councilwoman Barwood made her request, she got her answer. In June, a local TV reporter filmed military planes dropping flares over the Air Force gunnery ranges to the southwest of Phoenix. She noted the similarity the flares had to the lights observed in March and proposed it as a possible explanation for what people had seen. Sure enough, within a few days, the Tucson Weekly News broke a story that the Maryland Air National Guard had been in Arizona for winter training, and their planes dropped high-altitude flares on the night of March 13th. The natural response to this explanation? Could it be trusted? On the night of the event, amateur astronomer Mitch Stanley used a high-powered telescope to observe the lights as they flew near Scottsdale, and concluded that the lights were coming from individual planes flying in formation. Was he seeing the Maryland Air National Guard planes as they flew towards the gunnery range to drop their flares? It's certainly possible, although in a 1998 article by the Phoenix New Times, a spokesman for the Maryland Air National Guard said their planes never went north of Phoenix. Scottsdale, where Mitch Stanley observed the planes, is about 13 miles to the northwest of Phoenix, as are the other cities where the lights were observed. However, due to the mission's classified nature, it could just be that they didn't want to reveal the plane's movements. As for the slowly moving lights that moved over Phoenix, which appeared around 10 p.m., a public information officer for the Arizona National Guard revealed that the flares had been dropped around that time. A local UFO investigator demonstrated that the light's appearance, how they appeared from different elevations around Phoenix, and the timing of their disappearance would all line up with high-altitude flares dropped from beyond the Sierra Estrella mountain range, which is where the gunnery range is located. The explanation for the dark object that the light seemed to be attached to was that people were actually seeing the Sierra Estrella mountains on the horizon which is why the object seemed to block the stars. 
This would make sense for those who saw the lights from a distance, but for those who saw them pass directly overhead, it's obviously much harder to buy. If the lights were flares, it makes sense why they wouldn't have appeared on radar. If they were lights from planes, they wouldn't have appeared on the radar at Sky Harbor Airport either, because FAA radar operators in Albuquerque would have monitored them. Unfortunately, nobody made a request for the Albuquerque radar records in the required time window, and they were scrubbed before they could be examined. It seems that this was done following standard procedure, but considering the Air Force's preference to keep anything UFO-related under wraps, it does feel a bit odd. A huge discrepancy with the flare story is the analysis Michael Tanner and Jim Delatoso had performed that ruled out the possibility of the lights being flares. However, revelations about Delatoso's less-than-trustworthy past made it hard to take the analysis seriously. Delatoso had previously incorrectly claimed he used computers to verify the authenticity of a photo of what is alleged to be two female aliens in 1979, and also believed that music is a form of electromagnetic energy, which it certainly isn't. According to Delatoso, he arrived at his conclusions about the lights using advanced spectral analysis, which is the study of a range of related frequencies such as energy or light. However, all he was really doing was extracting a brightness profile, which is insufficient for determining whether a light is a flare or not. Additionally, it's impossible to do proper spectral analysis from videotape, which is what Delatoso claimed to be doing. As with so many other previous UFO explanations, there are many people who refuse to believe the government has provided the whole truth. The main issue people struggle with over the Phoenix Lights is the fact that flares don't move in formation once released and certainly aren't capable of hovering in midair. This problem could certainly be explained as an optical illusion, but believers are understandably skeptical of any explanation that comes from an official source. But what happens when the government itself is at a loss to explain a UFO encounter? such as the one Navy pilot David Fravor saw in November 2004. When the radar tech on the USS Princeton first detected the object, which the Navy has referred to as an anomalous aerial vehicle, or AAV, it was hovering at about 60,000 feet. It suddenly dived all the way to the ocean's surface in a matter of seconds, and then sped away and disappeared from the Princeton's radar so quickly that the crew thought it was a ballistic missile. The object reappeared two days later, and Fravor and his wingmen were quickly sent to intercept it. Fravor's encounter would go on to be retold in a January 2018 article by the Boston Globe. As Fravor and his wingmen approached the object's location, he spotted what seemed to be a disturbance in the water about the size of a Boeing 737 airplane. The weather was crystal clear, and the rest of the ocean was completely flat, ruling out the possibility of it being a natural occurrence. Then, Fravor spotted an object he described as, quote, solid white, smooth, with no edges, uniformly colored with no nacelles, pylons, or wings, end quote. It was moving erratically over the surface, almost bouncing like a ping-pong ball. Fravor tried to get a closer look and began a slow, circular descent toward the object. But the object began mirroring his movements in reverse, 
beginning its own circular ascent to stay away from Fravor's plane. Finally, Fravor decided to head directly toward the object, but it zoomed away. Fravor and his wingman then left for a rendezvous point 60 miles away, given to them by the Princeton. Shortly after, the object reappeared on the Princeton's radar, at the rendezvous point. But when the jets arrived, it was nowhere to be found. A 13-page report was prepared analyzing the object, which was informally dubbed the Tic Tac. The report includes the possibility that the object was a ballistic missile, and the reason their radar wasn't able to track is because it was only set up to track conventional aircraft. This strange event spurred the creation of a secret government program called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or AATIP, in 2007. It was the first government program since Project Blue Book dedicated to investigating UFO reports. The program had an annual budget of $22 million. It ran from 2007 to 2012 under the supervision of military intelligence official Luis Elizondo from a fifth-floor office in the heart of the Pentagon. The program got its start through former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, with the support of fellow Senators Ted Stevens and Daniel K. Inouye. It was funded using so-called black money, which is used to fund classified programs and keep funding debates off the Senate floor. Many of the funds went to entrepreneur Robert Bigelow's company, Bigelow Aerospace, which modified buildings in Las Vegas in order to store metal alloys and other materials that, according to Luis Elizondo, were recovered from unidentified aerial phenomena. Researchers also interviewed people who claimed they experienced physical effects from interacting with the objects and examined them for any potential physiological changes. They also spoke to members of the military who said they had encountered strange aircraft. In 2009, a Pentagon briefing summary of the program stated, quote, What was considered science fiction is now science fact, end quote. Senate Majority Leader Reid asked for the program to receive heightened security, but was denied. The program's funding was eventually shut down in 2012, but Elizondo and a few other officials continued to investigate reports while carrying out their other Department of Defense duties. Elizondo only officially resigned from the program in October 2017, citing excessive secrecy and internal opposition. Details regarding this program came out in a New York Times report that December. Elizondo eventually joined a private organization called To the Stars Academy of Arts and Science, which is dedicated to investigating unknown objects in aerospace. And it seems that he'll have his hands full. Only a few months ago, on March 9, 2018, To the Stars released footage that seemed to show the reappearance of the mysterious Tic Tac UFO. The footage, taken at an unknown date from fighter jets flying off the east coast of the U.S., shows an F-18 tracking the object as it hurtles over the ocean, with the incredulous F-18 pilot wondering aloud what the object is. CNN reported on the video, and although the Pentagon declined to comment, two of the stars said they went through the proper channels to obtain the footage and that anyone can obtain it through a Freedom of Information Act request. Elizondo insists this latest video is only the tip of the iceberg. 
a CNN safety analyst who worked in civilian aviation agencies, was baffled by what he saw and was unable to provide any explanation for what the object was. While Elizondo didn't seem to think this UFO was extraterrestrial in origin, he didn't rule out the possibility entirely. He believed that, quote, it could be anything, so I wouldn't rule anything out. And that's why I think we need to look at it. I mean, it could be Russian. It could be Chinese. It could be little green men from Mars. We don't know what the hell it is, end quote. And we may never know. But one thing is clear. Whether UFOs are alien spaceships, secret government projects, or merely misidentified natural and normal phenomena, they're not leaving the public consciousness anytime soon. According to the National UFO Reporting Center, sightings across the globe are reaching record heights. There was a record 8,619 sightings in 2014. To compare, in 1990, when Roswell was still firmly in the public consciousness, there were only 315 UFO sightings. The advance of technology has proved to be a double-edged sword for UFO skeptics. While it is now easier to disprove many reports, advanced technology leads to more events that people can't explain. For instance, on the night of December 23, 2017, thousands of people in Los Angeles and the west coast of the United States were left baffled by a giant white streak across the night sky. In the end, it was just a SpaceX satellite launch. But for the many people who had no idea the launch was happening, it was an unsettling sight. A couple months later, two airplane pilots flying over southern Arizona on February 24, 2018, reported seeing a strange object flying at approximately 50,000 feet. The object was too bright to make out what it was and seemed to be moving at the speed of a normal jetliner. The only problem was that nothing was showing up on radar. Additionally, representatives from nearby military bases didn't report any of their aircraft in the area that day. However, what they were probably seeing was a high-altitude balloon. According to one of the pilots, there's a recent trend of amateur videographers, hobbyists, and university students attaching cameras to small, high-altitude balloons. These balloons are too small to pick up on radar, and the object's apparently high speed could be down to a lack of a reference point, or that it was being carried along in the jet stream. In the end, I think these incidents perfectly encapsulate what's at the heart of the vast majority of UFO sightings, miscommunication. Prior to the SpaceX launch, Los Angeles city officials put out a notice about the launch, but many people were obviously not aware of it. And with no official platform for amateur enthusiasts to put out notices of their high-altitude balloon launches, it's understandable why there was so much confusion about what the airplane pilots saw in February. This sort of miscommunication harkens all the way back to the original incident at Roswell in 1947. But back then, it was much more deliberate. When the government prefers to encourage UFO rumors than to acknowledge military tests, it leads to understandable paranoia. This mistrust in official explanations was perfectly illustrated by the Phoenix Lights incident. Although the facts all line up with the official explanation, there are valid reasons to believe that we might not be getting the whole truth. The possibility that UFOs could be visitors from another planet also offers a comforting thought that we're not alone in the universe. 
The UFO craze beginning at the dawn of the nuclear age wasn't a coincidence. In the blink of an eye, the detonation of the nuclear bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki made our planet a much more dangerous place. If alien visitors are capable of coming to us, it also means we could be capable of going to them if life on Earth was no longer feasible. Personally, I fall more on the skeptical side when it comes to UFOs. I think there are rational explanations to all these events, even if it's not immediately clear what they are. I agree that they're certainly not flying saucers from outer space. But I think there are some UFO reports that live up to the unidentified moniker. Perhaps we'll get an explanation for the Tic Tac UFO. Or it might fade into obscurity and we'll never know what David Fravor saw from his F-18. What we do know is this. Unless the government suddenly comes out with the announcement that UFOs really are alien spacecraft, people will continue to speculate about what UFOs are and where they come from. Whether they're flying saucers or secret military balloons, people will continue to spot UFOs in the night sky. Who knows? If you look long enough, you might see one too. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unexplained Mysteries. We hope you found our investigation into UFOs both insightful and thought-provoking. If you're looking for more Unexplained Mysteries, you can find us as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Many listeners ask how to help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Alex Benedin and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>